Let's continue in worship by taking our Bibles this morning and turning to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be looking at verses 26 through, excuse me, verses 20 through 29. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have today to celebrate the Lord's Supper and all that it means to us today as believers in Christ. Father, we thank you for the powerful message that's communicated, Lord, not just through the spoken word, but as we see the gospel today through this observance. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Jesus said, in my Father's kingdom, we will share this meal. We'll drink this cup again. And so today we want to look at the kingdom meal. The kingdom meal. I know we officially ended our kingdom series last Sunday, uh, but this was too good to pass. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about the kingdom again. And there will be a meal. We'll uh, look at that as we talk a little later on. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. We want to look at that first Lord's Supper, what we just read. And, you know, it's been talked about, celebrated, and even put on print. I want to show you a picture this morning. Here's a picture of that first supper, the Lord's Supper. This is a, a replica or a picture by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper. You know, it has the appearance of a kind of a, a lot going on. And in most meals, there usually is a lot going on. Somebody said that the first thing that Jesus said was, okay, guys, let's all get on one side of the table for the picture. But, um, <laughs> you know, the truth is it, it was really nothing like that. They weren't standing or sitting. They were all laying around a table. And what they were eating, kind of Middle Eastern style as they would eat the bread. And it was not uncommon for one person to feed the next person with, with the bread and the cup there. So anyway, this is, this is the picture we have in our mind. And for many of us today, when we think about the Lord's table, we even think about coming to church, we think about, you know, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. As a matter of fact, sometimes when we think, when we come to church, we need to kind of get our act together, 
And I know what it's like. Well, I can't really say that. Teresa really got our kids ready for church on Sunday mornings when the kids were small. And I know how hectic that can be. I always, if I was preaching, I took out early so I you know, wouldn't have to find all the missing shoes and get all the stuff together. And some of us can get all that and have that just the wildest time. And then we show up at church, praise God. Praise God. Everything's great. You know, we look at a scene like that and we think about the first Lord's Supper that night. And we think everything was great. But I want you to know that it was not. Now, it should have been. A meal time usually is a time to uh, kind of relax and have a time together. <laughs> it was interesting. I was thinking about meal time at my house growing up. And when we came to eat, we came to eat. I mean, there was one thing we wanted to accomplish, and that was to eat. We had cornbread and some kind of meat and some kind of vegetable, and we sat there and we ate. And then when I got married, I found out that Teresa's family, meal times were a time to catch up. They were a time to have conversation. You know, and again, that was so different from me because I always had one thing on my mind when I came to the table, and that was to eat. But you know, have you ever been at a meal where things got disrupted? Somebody made a comment or somebody made a remark and there was tension at the table. That's not a good place to be. It's not a fun place to be. You know something's wrong. You know, I want you to see this morning, that is more of the atmosphere of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. I want you to know it was a time filled with tension. Uh, Luke's gospel, Matthew, and Luke's gospel chapter 22 tells us specifically that Satan had entered the heart of Judas to betray him. And so we see that there are a lot of things at work here. Satan was at work. Luke also tells us that, listen to this, right after the supper, the disciples began to argue. And you know what they were arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? So there was tension there. We read in Matthew's account, I just read it for you. Jesus looked at his disciples, looked around the table, and he said, okay, guys, one of you, one of you will betray me. And Matthew says they were deeply grieved. So go with me now. I want you to see this, this meal. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty. It's a scene, I, I think, of great contrast. It was a time of deep fellowship. And at the same time, there was bitter betrayal. It was a time when we see tangibly the love of God and the wickedness of man. We see the honest evaluation of the disciples. Is it I? And we see the deceptive cover-up of Judas who looked Jesus in the eye and said, surely not I, Lord. Do you see what's going on? We also see in this picture the sorrow of death and yet the anticipation of eternal joy. Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 2, had said, after the two days of Passover's coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. But the disciples had no idea that one of them would hand Jesus over for the crucifixion. None of the disciples would have suspected it had been one of their own. But let me tell you, Jesus knew and Judas knew. 
what was going on. So what we see in this supper and the events, and that's what we're going to do today. And then next Sunday, we'll look at the cross. And then the next Sunday, obviously celebrate the resurrection. But tonight, this morning, we wanted to see the fulfillment. And, and this is one of the great mysteries of scripture. We see parallel truths all throughout scripture. We see the sovereign plan of God that runs right alongside the accountability of man. Was it God's plan that Jesus be crucified? This means yes, this means yes, talk to me. Was it God's plan? All right, yes. But was Judas responsible? Was Judas accountable? Yes. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter two. He said that God, according to his foreknowledge and foreplan, and yet was put to death at the hands of wicked men. So we see the mystery of God's sovereignty, man's responsibility running through this passage today as we look at it. We see the fulfillment of God's plan, but yet we see the wickedness and deception of man's heart. So this meal, the beginning was filled with turmoil. Why? Because of a couple things. Number one, the presence of sin. Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of you. That came as quite a shock. Have you ever, I know we, we were shocked. We weren't sitting around the table, but we had our grandkids all together at Christmas and we're all sitting around in the, uh, the living room there. We've got 10 kids, 10 grandkids, five boys, five girls, and everything's going along. We're present, we're laughing. All of a sudden we open up a gift and it's a little picture frame and it says 11. We were shocked, <laughs> shocked. And so we began that game. Is it you? Is it you? <laughs> we only got three kids. They're all girls except two. But we, we said, you know, are you, is it you? And Katie, who has five, said, no, it's not me. And KJ, I said, is it you? He just kind of smiled. But Olivia and Cameron, I said, it's us. We're having number four. Is it you? I mean, so, you know, announcements can bring shock. This announcement, one of you will betray me. So they were shot. They were, Matthew says, they were deeply grieved. So they began to ask, Lord, is it I? Surely not I. You can't possibly mean me, can you? Now this is, I think, speaks well of the disciples. They didn't say, hey, I know it's Judas. I know it's you. They said, is it me? Is it me? Dave Harvey in his book, it's a premarital counseling book. When sinners say I do, I highly recommend it. But Dave Harvey says when there's a problem in your marriage, the first thing we should do is humbly suspect ourselves. If there's a problem in this relationship, is it me? Is it me? I've learned a long time ago, the guy that gives me the most trouble, the one that gives me the most grief is my wife's first husband. That's me. Okay. okay, I'm the one. Yeah, it's like Grant Taft. He sent a coach out one time to West Texas to scout this quarterback. And the quarterback, you know, was a good dual threat guy, but it had been raining that night. So he took the ball one time. He ran. He's going to run. He's going to pass. And all of a sudden he slipped down in the wet field and just fell down. And the reason he told that story was because the PA announcer said, hey, it's Willie. He's got the ball. He's going to run. He's going to pass. No, oh, he's down. He's a victim of self-tackleization. <laughs> we are our greatest enemies. And so let me, let me hopefully give us a healthy perspective on that, okay? 
If the apostle Paul can call himself the chief among sinners, where does that leave you and me? In humility, we need to always be on guard. In humility, we need to always suspect ourselves. Again, Dave Harvey says, to be suspicious of my own heart is to acknowledge two things. Number one, that my heart has a central role in my behavior. What does that mean? That I can be emotional at times. That I can lead with my heart rather than my brain. That my heart is central role in my behavior. And then secondly, we need to realize that my heart has a permanent tendency to oppose God and his ways. My heart has a permanent tendency to oppose God. Now let me ask you, is that scriptural? Where does it say that? Jeremiah. Jeremiah said that clearly. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, church, many times we think we know ourselves and when in reality, we don't. We need to suspect ourselves. That's what the disciples were saying. Is it me? Is it me? Let me just encourage you this morning. Be honest with yourselves. Don't deceive yourself. Are there issues in my life today? Am I the one causing the problem? We not only suspect ourselves, but we examine our hearts. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, and uh, Pastor Kyle read that a while ago. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must first examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does that mean? It means that as we come to the table, we, you know, I've got issues in my life. Am I the problem? I've got issues in my life. Is there sin in my life? I examine my heart. Lord, are my motives right? Am I on the right path? You know, I, I love the, the, God, the word of God is profitable for teaching. It tells us how to go for reproof. It tells us when we get off for correction. It tells us how to get on back on and for training in righteousness. God, is there somewhere in my life where I've gotten off the path? Is there some way, somewhere in my life where I have failed? And, you know, there, there, there are ramifications for that. So we examine our heart. The Lord's table is a time for us to examine our own hearts. And, you know, the disciples were doing exactly that. Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Am I the one who will betray you? They didn't focus on each other. They focused on themselves. See, Scripture does not give us permission to make the sins of other people our priority. Matter of fact, Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye if you want to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, isn't that what we have a tendency to do? We want to look at a minor issue in somebody else's life when we're standing here, sitting here, with some pretty major things going on in our own life. For us to ignore our own sin in order to deal with trivial sin in another person's life is wrong. It's the height of hypocrisy. So we need to ask this morning, Lord, is it I? Surely not I. That's the question they ask. Then they began to ask, who is it? Who is it? Verse 22, surely not I. Who is it then, Lord? The potential for sin. Jesus said, 
He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And you know what I think they were, how they responded to that? Great. We all just did that. <laughs> I mean, it was common to have a, a bowl where they would dip their bread. You know, you go to these nice restaurants, there's a, you can dip your bread in the sauce or whatever. But they would do that, pass around. And as far as we know, all of the disciples participated. So Jesus said, the guilty party is the one who just ate with us. So they said, God, that includes all of us. And you know what? They were right. The potential for sin is in all of us. They were all candidates. They'd all had equal opportunity. Of course, we know that the guilty party was Judas. But what about Peter? What about some of the other disciples? Were they capable? Yeah. I want you to know they were capable. Judas was the one. But again, we don't see them pointing their finger at him. Judas had been with Jesus for three years. He'd heard all the sermons, all the miracles. He saw he was part of the most privileged group of men in the history of humanity. Had every opportunity. Yet his heart was hard. It was cold. It was deceptive. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written in him. Again, we see the sovereignty of God and the accountability. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Again, this is the mystery of God's work. Everything happened as it is written, but yet Judas was held accountable for his part in the betrayal. God's sovereign purpose and man's accountability runs all through Scripture. Notice Judas, verse 25. Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. You've said it yourself. Notice the deceitfulness of his heart. Judas knew it was him. Jesus knew it was him. Let me just say, the potential of sin in all of us is great. Again, is that scriptural? Yes. Paul told the church at Corinth, therefore he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We may be able to fool others, but we can't fool God. We know our hearts and the Lord knows our hearts. And let me tell you this, Satan knows our weaknesses. Satan knows our weaknesses. We need to understand our potential for sin. I have a friend who worked with me years ago with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And he would always introduce himself, hi, I'm Joe Morgan. I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I talked to him one day, Joe said, well, how long have you been sober? He said, about 43 years. He said, but you know, Keith, I am just one drink away from being a drunk. I realize the weakness of my life. You know, I learned a lot from talking to Joe because see, that's the nature of sin. Paul says, I buffet my body because I, I discipline myself because after I've run and after I've led others, I don't want to be a spiritual castaway myself. Paul understood the deceitfulness of sin. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says this, watch over your heart with all diligence. Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Let me tell you, some of you are here today. We're all here by the grace of God. We're all here by the grace of God. You know, but I just can't help but think there may be some here today who are in a bad place. You're in a dangerous place, to say the very least. You begin to move, you've begun to move in circles or engage in activities that you know will lead to trouble. 
The potential for sin is in all of us. Here's the question. How do we deal with our struggles? How do we deal with our weaknesses? How do we deal with our brokenness? You know, I've said it many times, we're all broken just in different ways. And it's our brokenness that allows God's grace to come into our life. And it's that same brokenness that provides the cracks for God's grace to flow out of our life. So don't waste your brokenness. Don't waste your struggles. But the question is, what are you going to do with them? A couple options. We continue to pretend like everything's okay. Or we can get honest with ourselves. We can go to our brothers or sisters in humility and ask for help, for prayer and accountability. More importantly, and most importantly, we can confess our sin and seek our Heavenly Father's forgiveness. This significant night, this last meal was filled with tension and confusion. And then Jesus kind of adds to it in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. What's he saying? He said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. This cup represents my blood that's going to be shed for you. I don't carry pictures in my wallet anymore, but I could show you my phone pictures of my wife. Now that picture is not my wife but it's a symbol of my wife. The bread is not the body of Jesus, but it's a picture of the body of Jesus. The cup is not the blood of Jesus, but it's a picture of the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus said here, symbolically, my, you know, just like he said, I'm the door. Was Jesus a door? <laughs> you know, he said, I, I, the temple will be torn down in three days and be raised back up. Was Jesus a temple? No. But here he said, my body is like this bread. It's going to be broken. My blood is like this cup. It's going to be shed. And to eat and drink is to, by faith, is spiritual eating and drinking as we place our trust in the body that's broken, in the blood that was shed. And that's what Jesus was saying. Unless you eat and drink, you will perish. So by faith, Jesus is saying there is a new covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. Jesus almost quoted verbatim Exodus 24, 8. Moses took the blood, and this was the blood of young bulls. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses takes the blood of slaughtered animals. He sprinkled some on the altar and he sprinkled some on the people. And then he said, this is a symbol, symbolically showing that they had been joined, the nation of Israel had been joined with God as their Savior and Redeemer. So Jesus is quoting almost verbatim Exodus 24, 8. This is the blood of the covenant. But he says, this is the blood, this is my blood. Notice that. This is my blood of the covenant. He's indicating that his blood would be shed, not the blood of goats or bulls, but his own blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Through the death of Christ, all who eat of his body and drink of his blood come into a covenant relationship with God. 
And again, faith is spiritual eating and drinking. If you do not eat and drink, you die. So Jesus uses the bread and the cup as symbols of his work on the cross. Trust in what I'm going to do on the cross. It is spiritual life for you. Trust in the body that was broken. Trust in the blood that was shed. So the bread and the cup served at the Lord's Supper. They're designed to point us to a greater reality. The reality of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not saved as we eat, but because we are saved and having repentance turned from our sinful ways and by faith, we've turned to Christ. That's why we share this meal together. He bore our sins in his body, which was broken for us. His blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven. We believe this morning, we remember, we proclaim his death until he comes. But this morning as we close, this meal also points to another greater reality. That the meal that began with turmoil, and, and I hope you caught that because some people think, well, you know, my life is a mess. Is anybody else like that? Yeah. Yeah, we all got a mess. My life, but Jesus deals with a mess. Did the disciples have a mess in their life? Yeah. Did they have things going on? Yeah. But look what Jesus said to these disciples. But I say to you, verse 29, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. (laughs) The absence of sin. Beyond sin and death, there is life in my Father's kingdom. A new day is dawning. And when Jesus looked at those disciples, he knew one of them would betray him. When he looked at those disciples, he knew they would all abandon him. Jesus looked at those disciples, and there was Peter, the rock. You know, Peter was like some of my teammates. He could have done anything with a football except sign it. You know, he was just, he wasn't the brightest guy, but he was loyal. And what was he about to do? Deny him three times. Jesus knew the mess. Jesus knew what was going on. And yet he says to those disciples, hey guys, I'm going to sit down with you once again and share a meal with you. We're going to drink together. But the next time it's going to be in my father's kingdom. What was he saying? I'm going to die, but don't give, don't lose hope. I'm going to be buried, but don't lose hope. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to ascend to my father and I'm going to come back and his kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a kingdom coming. So Jesus this morning knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows our brokenness. He knows it all, the good and the bad. He knows the victories and the struggles. He knows the joy and the pain. And you know what he says? Have faith. Trust in me. We will sit down one day, not at Alberta Baptist Church, not at any church here on earth, but we will sit down one day at the table and we will drink the cup together in my Father's kingdom. So what do we do in the meantime? We're to eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaiming his death until he comes. 
When he comes, we'll join him at the Father's ki- in the Father's kingdom where there will no longer be sin or death or any mess. Jesus makes a glorious promise that we need to hang on to, that we need to take to heart, that in spite of our struggles, in spite of our frailties, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our brokenness, there is hope in Christ. And we just need to lean into Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in him. One day, one glorious day, we all sit with him in our Father's kingdom. This morning, are you trusting in Christ? Do you know what it's like to be forgiven? The blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. His body was broken so that we could have a new relationship with God. The gospel is an invitation to all. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. Come to Jesus today if you don't know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory of the gospel.